0: This week on Life and Faith.
1: We took them to the beach and they said, oh, Nana, how do you call out to the dolphins in language, you know? And I sang out language and I just did it off the top of my head and I said, oh, that put me on the spot. But somehow it just came to me and I was speaking and shouting out and they were oh, go on, Nan, you're deadly. <laughs>
0: We shouldn't wonder at why societies fall apart. There's nothing for the everyday person. It's anything but passive. It's anything but weak. As you've got religion in decline, you get ideologies substituting for religion. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. And this is a blockbuster episode, and a little longer than usual, for Reconciliation Week here in Australia, one we've been wanting to do for a long time, an episode on Indigenous languages and efforts to reclaim, revive, revitalise them.
2: The 2021 census tells us that a little over 800,000 Australians identify as Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander. That's around 3% of the population. And around 10% of those people speak an indigenous language. But the number of traditional languages that are spoken today by children, which of course is a measure of the future that a language has, that number is very low. About a dozen languages out of hundreds that existed before colonization.
0: Yes, and loss of language has been among the most devastating impacts of the last 250 years for First Nations people. For many languages, the break in transmission between generations is as recent as the stolen generations, the removal of children from their families up to the 1970s. Language and culture are inseparable. Indigenous people will tell you, if our language survives, we survive.
2: In a little bit, you're going to hear from an Israeli linguistics professor who has been using the records of a 19th century German missionary to help the Bangala people revive their language. He'll explain a bit about the how and why of reawakening languages. But first, I want to introduce you to two women who are working on the revival of their language, Noongar.
1: Kaya, my name is Charmaine Councillor. I'm a Wadandi, a Baladong woman um, living in the southwest of Western Australia, and my family uh, are all connected to the Midwest on my grandmother's side through the Yamaji people, and on my father's side, and my other grandparents' side are from the Wheat Belt um, in the Southwest.
3: Kaya, um, my name is Rosalind Khan, and I'm from the Punjab in India. Um, that's on my grandmother's side, my father's side, um, and I'm from the Yamaji Nunga, and I'm living on Wadandi Country. And I have um, up in Pinjarra up there. Um, that's where my grandfather comes from. And my grandmother comes from
2: the Carnarvon area. And aside here, we had this conversation on Zoom and there are a couple of times the connection breaks up a little. Bear with us. So, Noongar, commonly spelled N-O-O-N-G-A-R in English, though it's spelled in lots of ways, is a language once spoken across the southwestern corner of Australia. Kaya, you may have grasped, means hello
1: in Noongar. Here's Charmaine again. The status of our language today is still in quite endangered. It's considered as one of the many endangered languages in Australia. Uh, Noongar language has begun a revival, and a revival sort of started around in the early 70s, but really became a huge revival in 1992, when many of our elders came together and decided to, revive our language and develop school programs and then there was um a sort of a gap a couple of years i suppose a downtime where as we all know that when you lose elders in our community we lose our speakers and then when you lose your speakers you lose the ability to transfer language onto the next generation so there was a bit of a downtime there where the the language became dormant asleep, which many linguists like to say when languages aren't spoken, they go to sleep on country. And then I would say in the last 20 years it started to revive again when you got champion people out in the community. Some of the elders are still alive and still speaking, still had that passion. So our our language is is growing. There was an estimate that 400 people using Noongar language in some form or another so it's still got a long way to go. But what Roslyn and I are doing is actually helping to um, bridge that gap even more. Ros agrees that the Nunga language is vulnerable,
3: but doing better than it was when she was growing up. I mean, there's one school here, an Aboriginal school, where my daughter attended, and that's why I wanted to to go to the school to get learn her culture and her language. So that's what got me... Thinking about what I wanted to do, I wanted to learn my language, so like the flow-on effect with our children and generation. Um, yeah.
2: So, does your daughter speak it?
3: Not really. Um, I think she's at that stage where she feels a bit shame, mm. uh, as was I when I was a child. I mean, that's how it was back in the day, for some. And but yeah, she, I, I do say name words to her, and she repeats it and. I tell her to be proud of her language, and sometimes she does say it, but there is one word that sticks in her head. The one for listening is ni. So she's on with that straight away if she wants my attention.
2: This is maybe a hard question or maybe an easy question to answer. I'm not sure, but what does your language mean to you?
3: It means a lot since learning it five years now. Connection to country, know where I belong. So yeah, it's it's amazing what Sharma started up. So yeah, I know who I am and where I come from. Sorry, no,
2: please don't apologize. It really conveys that it's a very emotional thing. What about
1: you, Shamin? Yes, it's uh, it's giving back your identity. It's given me encouragement to speak about myself. It's given me a lot of confidence in who I am as growing up as a child in my local community here and, and being a minority many times in the classroom as a Noongar child amongst other different cultures. And you always felt that little bit of embarrassment about who you are. And I think it was all because of how we were portrayed as Aboriginal people in our communities with history and we always felt like we didn't have a voice, or didn't, couldn't. We couldn't sort of identify who we were in that situation. I knew I felt different in the classroom, but I couldn't describe it. I can remember one moment where I think I may have been in year two or three. A teacher showed me a picture of a, a goanna, and I never knew the word goanna. And I said, "Oh no, that's a carra," and she said, "No, it's a goanna." And then I thought, maybe I'm wrong, because you always sort of grow up knowing that your peers or your elders or your teachers are the people that are correct. So that prevented me from speaking that word again for a while. And and then I went home and telling my parents that that's a goanna. And they said, no, it's a karata. But I didn't know that um, I was speaking Noonga at that time until it dawned on me later on in life that I wish I would have been encouraged to be able to express that word in the classroom because the teacher didn't understand herself. So it feels like a bit of a regret that I wish I would have had an awareness as a child. But, see, we just grew up just speaking these words and we thought we were speaking some strange slang or incorrect English. So to speak my language today has given me my identity, like Rosalind said, to country, connection to country, um, I can go anywhere in Australia and speak my language and people go, oh, that's that Mofum Noongar group, you know, down in the southwest of Western Australia on the coast. And it's just so, I feel so proud and honoured that I took on the challenge those 20-plus years ago, and I just praise God that he's given Rosin and I the compassion and the passion to to want to learn I know it's a big answer that I'm providing here, but it's just everything to us because it's like our air that we breathe, it's us, it's our identity. And it gives us our healing back to our people too. And I understand why Sister's emotional because it's everything.
2: Roz and Charmaine are giving us an insider's view of what it's like to be part of a language revival, to reclaim your own language. Here's someone who's come from outside to be part of that same process with Indigenous groups.
4: My name is Gilad Tsukerman. It means eternal happiness, sugar man. I'm an endangered (laughs) languages professor at the University of Adelaide, so endangered that I'm the only such professor in Australia. There are no other endangered languages professors, only me.
2: That's wonderful.
4: (laughs) So endangered qualifies both the languages and the professorship. (laughs) I'm serious.
2: And you're from Israel.
4: I am born in Israel to a Holocaust survivor father from Italy and to a young mother who was born after the Holocaust in Israel to Czech Jewish father and to a German Jewish mother and I grew up in a very beautiful little town called Elat which is currently the southernmost city of Israel but when I was a child Sinai Desert was part of Israel so when I make a trip down memory lane I need a passport, a visa and a certificate that there are no terrorists in Sinai which now belongs to Egypt because this is where my childhood was spent, in what is now known as Egypt. So it's a very kind of uh, UNESCO uh, childhood, you know.
2: Gillard came to Australia via Oxford, Cambridge, and Singapore.
4: When I arrived in Melbourne in 2004, I asked myself, how can I contribute to the um, hosting uh, society, you know, to the Australian society? And I characterised two main problems in Australia. The first one was heartless bureaucracy, and uh, I said to myself, how can a professor assist? Of course, I cannot assist, I can only swallow the bitter pill. But the other problem I identified in 2004 was the Aboriginal plight. The fact that Aboriginal people lost their land, lost their languages, lost their health, lost their plot. And I said to myself, okay, so had I been a dentist, I would have probably given Aboriginal friends of mine teeth because many of them have no teeth. Had I been a psychologist, I would have done kind of anti-smoking workshops or, you know, because most Aboriginal friends of mine are smokers. But at the time, 2004, I was an expert of the Hebrew revival. I was a revivalist, an expert of a revival that happened 100 years earlier. And I said to myself, wow, 400 Aboriginal languages, only 12 are alive and kicking, which means 3%. What happened to the other 97%? I mean, it's crazy. And then I decided to establish a new niche. And the niche was, I defined it as revivalistics, applying lessons from the Hebrew revival in the promised land to the reclamation and empowerment of Aboriginal languages in the lucky, country. Of course, both are in quotation marks, promised land and lucky country. This is what I have been doing since 2004. Then I said to myself, I need to find a specific tribe that lost its language, that would like to reclaim it, and that I have enough material for the reclamation. And this is when I was appointed endangered languages professor at the University of Adelaide in Australia Australis, which means in the south of the south, because Australia in Latin means south already. So I'm in the south of the south. I decided to invite five Bangala people to my office. It was September 2011 or November 2011. And I said to them, look, I have found a dictionary written by a Lutheran Missionary from Osnabrück, from Germany. His name was Klamor Wilhelm Schumann. This dictionary, I can get 3,500 words out of it, which is amazing. I mean, think about the Old Testament, it only has 8,000 distinct words. 2,000 of them are Hapax Legomena, which means appearing only once in the Bible. So only 6,000 common words. So I could get 3,500 words, which is more than half of the Bible, of the Old Testament. And then I have I can get the grammar out of his grammar. I know, I told them, that you had lost your language uh, 50 years ago. Uh, they lost the language in, at the beginning of the 60s. And my question to you, do you want to empower your well-being? Do you want to improve your mental health? Do you want to reconnect with your heritage? Do you want to kind of reconnect with your intellectual sovereignty, with your cultural autonomy, with your spirituality, with your soul? To which they replied, and I quote, we have been waiting for you for 50 years. That's what they told me. So when they told me that, here in this office, that was a game changer in my life. So. Since then, I have been conducting dozens, if not hundreds, of workshops with hundreds of Bangla people. And we have arrived at a situation in which now I'm actually passing the baton to them because I don't believe that I need to be kind of the, mission, the ling- linguist missionary forever. They need to be at the wheel.
2: What does it do for people to have their language revived, revitalised, reclaimed?
4: There are three main changes that language reclamation, revitalization and reinvigoration creates. The first one is ethical or deontological. The second one is aesthetic. And the third one is utilitarian. In other words, the first one is what is right. The second one is what is beautiful. And the third one is what is beneficial or what is useful to society. The ethical one, the ontological one, has to do with righting the wrong of the past. And Aboriginal people feel that when we reclaim their sleeping beauty or their dreaming beauty tongue, we are doing something that their language deserves. It deserves to be reclaimed simply because it was killed. How was it killed? Well you have people like say Anthony Forster who said in 1843, so he was a colonizer here in Adelaide, he said the natives would be sooner civilized if their language was extinct. This is an ideology of linguicide because he understands that language actually is a key part of your identity. Another linguicide factor, uh, Lavinia Richards, with whom I uh, work, Howard Richards, you can see his photo here, Uh, unfortunately he died, they were stolen from their mother and they were not allowed to speak their language. So this is linguicide, language killing, which is according to the United Nations one of the ten forms of genocide. So in order to be accused of genocide you don't need to kill anybody, it's enough if you kill the language. This is part of genocide so the ethical change is this change in you that you feel ah wow we are doing something ethical we are doing something right by the way this is why i do it but there are two other changes the second one is a aesthetic change so we reclaim a language we add diversity to the world a little bit like we maintain zoological diversity so i contribute money to keeping some koalas or you know, giraffes alive and, or, you know, the Tasmanian devil. But then you, you say to yourself, many people care about the Tasmanian devil, but how many people care about the Tasmanian uh, languages, like the Palawa languages of Tasmania? Not too many. Why? This is beautiful to have so many diversities in the world. I mean, when I studied Yagan in Tierra del Fuego, I remember there was a word mamichapinatapay, which means to look one at the other, hoping that the other side would initiate something that both of us really wants to do but so far nobody has had the guts to initiate now i remember having this kind of perception this concept when i was 16 but i didn't have a word for it so this is beautiful to have this word in yagan and i can analyze it morphologically etc so this is beautiful the third change and this is critical for the aboriginal people is a utilitarian one because people who are part of the language revival they express feelings of empowerment. Jenna Richards, she told me, I feel liberated. It gives me a purpose in life. Evelyn Walker told me, our ancestors are happy because we are reviving our languages. When an Aboriginal person tells you our ancestors are happy, this is a sign that they are happy. So language reclamation results in better mental health, So, if you analyze it in economic terms, less money invested in incarceration, less money invested in uh, hospitalization, in psychiatric help, etc., etc., more people feel happier. They feel better about themselves. It's an antidote for self loathing. And self loathing is one of the unfortunate realities of colonization. Because when you reclaim a language, you actually cause not only the aboriginal people but also for the surrounding people to realize that aboriginal people are very advanced, very complicated, very complex, unlike what, uh, say, George Gray thought that the primitive, the rude languages disappear successively, he said, and the tongue of England alone uh, is heard around, you know, he regarded the aboriginal languages as rude. Why? Aboriginal languages are fascinating. You see in Bangla for example, you have a word like if I speak with you and I want to use a pronoun, I need to use a dual, we two. But if you are my sister's daughter, I would say nadlaga, we two related to each other through a woman. But if you are my brother's daughter, I would say narini, we two related to each other through a man. So the we two which, by the way, does not in, exist in English. In English, we and we too is the same, you know. Well, there is no dual. But in Bangalore, not only is there a dual, but also the dual is either patronymic or matrilineal. So it's very advanced. And you see that when we lose a language, we also lose all these kinship, relationship, necessity. So, you know, because languages differ not in what they can do, but what they must do you must determine whether you're related to each other, we are related to each other through a man or a woman. You know. So coming back to the utilitarian benefit, Aboriginal people who reconnect with their heritage tongue, they feel totally empowered and therefore they are less depressed, they eat better food, they're less obese, they have less sugar in their blood, they suffer less from diabetes, so I would argue that language reclamation can improve the diabetes problem among Aboriginal people. Now, of course, it's a domino effect because Aboriginal spirituality is extremely gestaltic, extremely holistic, a little bit like the Asian one. You know, you go to a Chinese doctor, you say, I have a headache. They say, OK, give me your toe. I say, No, no, it's in the head. Say, yeah, the toe will connect to the head. So when I say that language reclamation can, solve diabetes. uh, You know, a Western medical doctor can come and say, oh, what kind of palpable poppycock? You just check the sugar levels. Yeah, of course, but this is a domino effect. I mean, we, we get to the sugar levels through many, many other factors on the way. We do need to change our understanding of Aboriginal culture. I mean, there are billions or if not trillions of dollars being wasted by the government on tangible things and I think that there is a total overlook of the intangible and language is intangible, you cannot touch it, but I think that this intangible element can have a huge benefit when it comes to tangible elements. So there was research in British Columbia, Canada in 2007 that found out that language loss causes suicide. I argue that just as language loss causes suicide, language gain reduces suicide. Now, if we as a society do not want people to commit suicide, then we need to invest in language reclamation, because I would argue that language reclamation is not part of the arts or the humanities, but rather part of health. The moment I can convince governments that it's part of health, That is a game changer because, as we know, unfortunately, the arts and the humanities are less and less supported and, of course, health is more and more supported. And I'm saying to myself, you know, like, if you could give just a little bit to Aboriginal language revival (laughs) out of that health, you know, oh, wow, what it could have uh, done. So this is the third type of change.
3: Jesus Balang Kura Kambana Wangi. You are cool. Narak Mambakor Buddha Yambaku. Narakwama Mmoba Buddha Ko.
1: Jesus said to his disciples, Come, we will cross the lake. We will go to the other side.
3: Balap Kibara Bura Kool. Iji Balap Mambakot Yamba Marku.
1: They got into a boat and they sailed across the lake.
3: Koram Balap called. Jesus
0: This is life and faith, and this is the story of Jesus calming a storm from the Gospel of Matthew, which Charmaine Counselor and Rosalind Khan are currently translating into Nunga. Ros is reading, Charmaine is giving us the English. The wind became stronger, water began to fill the
3: boat.
2: Bible translation is one of the ways that Charmaine and Roz and many others are working on reviving the Noongar language. Revive the language
1: by um, exposing ourselves to language. Try to replace English words with Noongar as much as we can in our environment. For example, if we see a tree, we might say born. If we see a bird, we might say "jerup." So try to use much uh, natural speech in the community as possible. We know it's not going to be exactly what it was in previous years, but it, it can have a flow-on effect. And I think our biggest aim is to provide language um, to our children and give them the feeling that their language has not been lost and hasn't become dormant again. It's just going to be a natural thing that grows Um, At the moment, we have a term called Aboriginal English where we're mixing up Noongar words within English sentences and then we've changed the meanings of English words and gave it its own um, content. So it's been quite a clever little language that has revived somehow. It's like another dialect now. Mm -hmm. Can you give me an
2: example of that, of giving a different meaning to the English word?
1: Deadly. Deadly means excellent amazing, awesome, but of course in Western terms, it means dangerous, yeah.
2: One of the things I wanted to know from Gillard is, is reviving a language really possible? Surely it can never be how it was before.
4: That's a great question and I'm happy that you asked it. Two answers, firstly, before I answer your question, I would like to tell you that the reward is in the journey. This is very, very significant. The Aboriginal people themselves are the ones to determine how far to go in the reclamation. Do they want the full Monty? Meaning, do they want the grandchildren to speak the neo or the revived language? Like I speak Israeli as my mother tongue? Maybe, no. Maybe they want only to conduct rituals, funerals, weddings, Welcome to country in language. Maybe they want only to change the landscape, the linguistic landscape, the landscape with a G of the area to have everything written not only in English, but also in the regional tongue. So you go to Galinyala, Port Lincoln, it's written Nina Yua, Galinyala, you know, like, how are you? Welcome to Galinyala, which is the original name for Port Lincoln. Nobody knew it before I... Join the forces and now if you go to Port Lincoln you will see Galignala. so this is the landscape revolution. They are the ones who decide how far to go. Now if they want to go the full Monty of course they're not going to get the original language as it used to be because any successful language reclamation ought to result in a hybrid a hybrid which is based on both the target language, the language we're trying to reclaim, the sleeping beauty or the dreaming beauty echoing Jukurpa, you know, the dream time. The language will be a cross-fertilization between the sleeping beauty and the revivalists' mother tongue. So in the case of Bangla, Aboriginal people in Arab Peninsula, it's Aboriginal English, it's English, it might be Israeli because I'm part of the reclamation, so you'll see some Israeli elements penetrating. It would be German because Klamor Wilhelm Schumann, whose dictionary we use, was a German speaker. Now look, no one said that the cross-fertilization, kind of syncretic hybrid language is less good than the original language. I actually argue that hybridization results in new diversity in new aboriginal creativities so i have no problem with um you know embracing anti-imprisoning purism prism considerations i love hybridity and if somebody tells me give us authenticity or give us death i tell them okay so you get the death because any such puristic prescriptivist normativist approach would result in death rather than in alive. What do you prefer? Do you prefer a beautiful clean butterfly which is hanged on the wall or an injured kind of dirty butterfly which is alive and kicking? You know when you go to a farfallarium most butterflies are injured or dirty or they're not perfect but they're alive It's much more beautiful than a perfect butterfly which is hanged dead on the wall. So it's the same with languages. A language which is alive and kicking, regardless of whether or not it is distinct from the original language, is for me, a better language than kind of a museum language that everybody goes, oh yeah, we used to have this language 2000 years ago.
2: Here's one story from Charmaine of seeing a language
1: come to life again. I did a five-week program in the little local wheat belt community. could be about two to 300 people there, and there was quite a few elders there. But there was one particular elder that was very um, traumatised by relearning Noongar. She was told that it was a bad language, that it was a dirty language, and not to speak it. And she grew up in an era where children were taken away from family and separated and put into the mission. So, It was her mechanism not to speak the language, just to stay with family. And so she came to these classes every week and she would not participate at all. She would sit with her arms folded, very sort of cross-looking face, and she would not engage. And then all of a sudden we spoke about one particular word about smoke, smoke around the campfire. And she told me at the last lesson of the fifth week that I remembered something. And I said, oh, okay, Auntie." And she said, I remembered that the word for smoke, and she told me the word for smoke is boy. And I said, oh. And then she said, when there was a death in our community, we would make this black smoke from the campfire so that the other clans from the other areas would see this black smoke. And it was a sorry smoke. But she said, and then she started to talk nice and and opened up a little bit more. And her son that attended the workshop said, mum, I did not know that. I didn't know that cultural knowledge that you had. And she said, well, I didn't think about it until I got reminded. So even though she did not speak any Noongar at all for that five weeks, but she remembered this custom and this tradition, and she remembered this one word. So I thought that was a great celebration. And this elder would have been in her 80s, and so I could see that it took a lot for her to come up to me as a younger speaker, a younger member of the community, you know, to humble herself and to say that she's done this. So this would have happened nearly 10 years ago, but it still resonates with me every time I start working with a new group of people or with Elders.
2: I wanted to know why translate the Bible
1: specifically? I think why not? We have everything else written in other languages. And I feel that Noongar language uh, has been waiting for a long time to be translated into the Bible. And many of our community are um, spiritual people. A lot of our Elders are Christian people. So... I'm thinking, why not um, translate our Bibles into Noongar language or parts of the Bible into Noongar language? Also, it's another space where we can revitalise our language. Language can't be separate. Language has got to be every part of our life. It's got to cover everything, not just, you know, school, education programs, not sporting. You know, it's not just for small stories in the library. Language should be everywhere, should be flooded in all parts, in our thoughts, in our expressions, in our worship, songs, in singing, any, anywhere. It's just like breathing, just like how we speak English everywhere. Noongar should be everywhere.
2: What difference does it make when you're reading the Bible as a Christian person for it to be in Nunga rather than in English?
3: You're connecting to God when you're, you know, reading it in English, as well as the Mullah. It's an amazing thing. Just to see them words written down in a book, like what we've done with Genesis and all that, and just to see it published and the words to be able to read that is
1: really good. For me, um it's really um looking at the the gospel and Jesus's connection to country, using his language, using their languages, because the Bible was not just written in, in English. You know, that's only just one language that the Bible was translated into. So I think it's just reclaiming back our identity through the Bible and doing this translation in our language. is actually really opened my eyes um, as a Christian for a long time that I got to see a faith and a belief, of god and jesus and the whole christian um culture it's it's different it's not just seen through the eyes of the western world or just seen through the eyes of english speakers it's a deeper connection and and i can really relate that to me i believe jesus is an indigenous man and he he used an indigenous language and he used parables and he understood how we were connected to country and how healing, you know, everything's all about healing, connected to country, faith, belief, and spirituality. And our Noongar people are spiritual people. We are, are faith people. We've always been that. And what inspired me, I met this old man from another language group, and I said, oh, Uncle, how you found God? He said, what do you mean, found God? He's always been here. He's always been here on country. We didn't see it. He's in everything. So we have terms of, in our languages, about the one up here in the sky, the one down there, you know, the good and the bad. That's all in our Aboriginal languages across Australia, and I'm sure that's in many other cultures. So it's just that sometimes we've allowed that that trauma and that barrier of colonisation and English It was a barrier that stopped us from building that relationship with our spirituality and our faith.
2: There's a related and equally fraught question here about the role of Christian missionaries in all this. Sometimes colonial missionaries helped preserve languages. Often, including on government missions in the 20th century, they actively suppressed them.
1: Ah, It can be a bittersweet thing where a lot of missionaries through their own beliefs and their own religion felt it important to suppress another language to teach their faith. But many of them didn't realise that if they would have just allowed the language to flow and blossom, they could have learnt the faith anyway as an additional thing and could have realised that the cultural connections would have been very, very similar. So the people that came out came out with a very twisted view of what God's love was. And I'm thinking that They was the block, that it wasn't God, it was them. Because then that deterred our people from thinking, oh, God's bad, you know, God killed our people, God rid us of our language. It wasn't, God gave us our language, that's our belief. But man's own perception of what God is tainted that. And sadly, they thought that taking our language and our children away from family made us become... Christians through that way, you know. It was the wrong way to do it, I believe. And I I know some missionaries today from way back then believe that it shouldn't have happened. And a lot of the older missionaries that I met over the years of saying, you know, we need to revive the language and it's it's healing for our people. You didn't have to take kids away and you didn't have to suppress people for the language to teach about God. Um, God comes in all different languages and all different sizes, you know, everything. So I just think that back then, that's what their belief was, and sadly, it has affected a lot of our people understanding what the true meaning of love is. And and I can understand a lot of our people do not want to know about God because they were taught about God through trauma, through um, physical abuse, other abuse. So of course, they would associate. Christianity and, and the Bible and all those things to that trauma that they've experienced as a children. And I just felt that's very sad that our people were exposed to that when all along God is about love. Um, so that's what my view about it is. I found peace in that. I praise God for the insight that he has given many of our mob, our community, our Aboriginal people that are Christians, that we know we know that's not the case. We know that someone else's belief has, has installed a lot of other things that should not have happened.
2: I wanted to get Gillard's take on this too, as a secular Jew. Firstly, his view on Bible translation as a part of language revival.
4: Let us not forget, most Aboriginal people became Christian. And in fact, when I work with Aboriginal people, many of them say, Oh, you're Aboriginal too. I say, why? I say, because you're Jewish. I say, Jesus was Jewish. And say yeah but you know it's only three thousand i mean like judaism is only three thousand three hundred years you know and jesus is 2023 years you know and said no no you're aboriginal because you are part of the nation before jesus you know so they see me as an aboriginal person which is by the way great for me because it's much easier if you think about it to work with aboriginal people when you're not anglo-celtic i'm not saying that there are no anglo-celtic people who work very successfully with Aboriginal people. Of course they are. But as a generalization, being Jewish, being kind of a migrant, being a foreigner, being an outsider, is easier. So when Aboriginal people themselves ask for the translation of the Old or the New Testament or both to their language, I'm the first one to um, assist because, uh, you know, this is their business. They want to have it, so if they want me to assist, then I'm going to assist.
2: Gillard is not on board with what the missionaries were aiming to do in trying to convert Aboriginal people. From his vantage point, too, the legacy of these missionaries sits on both sides of the ledger.
4: On the one hand, missionaries, many missionaries, try to disconnect the Aboriginal people from their own spirituality, so I'm kind of critical. On the other hand, without them, we would have never been able to do what we are doing. So whether it's a happy byproduct of what they did, whether it's kind of they really thought that they did it for generations to come, et cetera, I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm not a prophet of the past. Mm-hmm. So we cannot deny that without Clamor, Wilhelm Schumann, Evelyn, Emma, Lavinia, stephen harry shania etc 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 would have not been happier so i am very grateful to these missionaries and when i went to uh, leipzig uh, and they told me oh you know these missionaries they did not manage to christianize anybody there were zeros i said no, no no they were heroes so from zeros they became heroes because now they're championed in uh, leipzig i mean Klamot Wilhelm Schumann used to be from Dresden. I mean, he was from Osnabrück. I went to the place where he was born. And uh, we ended up hosting several Lutheran directors, you know, from uh, Leipzig who came here to meet the Bangala people. And the Bangala people hugged them because they really are grateful to the missionaries. So it's a very complicated story, just like many stories.
2: To finish up here a challenge from Gillard for every listener, and a story from Charmaine, one that points to a brighter future.
4: I would like to say that if you, the listener, are good at languages, if you would like to contribute to uh, people who have lost a lot, ask yourself which Aboriginal tribe I can help, because there were 400, only 12, languages are alive and kicking. So 97% of languages need your assistance. So maybe instead of, I don't know, studying Spanish or Mandarin, or, which is wonderful, I mean, maybe study one Aboriginal language with the permission of the Aboriginal people. Ask them, do you need help? Do you need help to translate the Bible? Do you need help to do other things? I mean, Revivalistics is far beyond linguistics. It's not only linguistics, it's anthropology, it's architecture, it's law, it's mental health. I mean, we need, we need all these people when we revive a language. So I would say stop, revive and survive, as, as the <laughs> sign tells me when I drive in Victoria or when I drive in some places in Australia other than Victoria.
1: To speak more and more in Noongar, it becomes really exciting because you, you start to feel yourself moving from one language to another and you start to feel a bit more comfortable in your own skin with your language. I've actually dreamt a word one time. The word was mandaga. And I don't know how it came to my head. This was a few years ago. And when I came to work and I researched this word, it was actually mean young woman, mandaga. And I was like, what? And I said telling everybody, I think I dreamed this word. And I don't think they believed me, but that just really um, amazed me. Another goal that I want to get to is how do I pray in Noongar language without, you know, making sure that I'm clear and precise in my meaning when I'm speaking to the Lord. I was so envious, I'd say. <laughs> don't want to be envious, but I was envious when I went to a conference where a lot of the people that have their fluent languages were speaking and praying in, in their language. I said, oh, I want to do that one day. So I've started to a little bit, you know, say Kaya, uh, Yirra Maman or Bulanga and then I say it in English and I end off in Noongar. But, yeah, I just I wouldn't feel comfortable yet doing it in front of other church members or other people that don't speak Noongar because they might be thinking, oh, what is she going off in tongues or something? <laughs> but, yeah, I, I just feel like um, it's like, you know, when you're riding a bike, you know, for the first time and you you got your training wheels on then all of a sudden you, you're taken off down the road and then you forget about how you're riding the bike. You're just riding it and then you enjoy it. That's where I am at the moment. I'm getting to the part where I'm really enjoying it and start speaking it more. Recently, I've got my um, two granddaughters over from the east and they're very much engaged with the languages from over there with the revival. And we took them to the beach and they said, Oh, Nana, how do you call out to the dolphins in language, you know? And I sang out language and I just did off the cuff, you know, top of my head. And I said, Oh, that put me on the spot. But somehow it just came to me. And I was speaking and shouting out, noonga, and they reckon, Oh, go on, Nan, you're deadly. <laughs> when they re- reminded me what I was doing, I went, Oh, I got very unconscious about what I just did. And I went, Did I do that? <laughs> you know? All of a sudden, telling you, "Oh, you're riding that bike now," and I was like, "Oh, what?" And I fell off. <laughs> so I was like, "Oh, I was going for it," and all of a sudden, someone reminded me what I was doing. Then I just stopped. I think it's the confidence about to keep going. Using natural language anywhere I go is a challenge for me, even though I've been learning Dungar for a long time. But using it in everyday conversation is a challenge for me. But I'd love to sit down and yarn like this in my language one day. Wouldn't that be awesome?
0: This has been Life and Faith from the Centre for Public Christianity with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. We're so grateful to Charmaine Councillor and Rosalind Kahn for speaking to us about the Noongar language today and to Professor Gillard Zuckerman from the University of Adelaide. Thanks as well to Amy Crookshanks, our colleague at Bible Society Australia, who's working with Roz and Charmaine on Bible translation and has been a huge help with this episode. And of course, thanks to our producer, the omnicompetent Alan Douthwaite, who had to work especially hard to draw together this bumper episode.
2: We'll put a link in the show notes to Revivalistics. This is Professor Zuckerman's book on the transdisciplinary field that he's founded, and also to a couple of books you can get hold of in Noongar, The Old Testament Story of Ruth and the Gospel of Luke, the one that Roz and Charmaine were reading from about Jesus calming the storm. That one's due out soon.
0: Please do leave us a rating or review. It helps more people come across Life and Faith And we'd love it if you would share this episode with someone you think might enjoy it. Next week.
3: None of us can guarantee staying somewhere forever. And if we do, it won't stay the same. But just moment by moment, be this is where I am. This is where my life is. This is where my relationships are. Um, And I will love it, even if it might be very hurtful later, because I might have to say goodbye to all of it.